I think it's about more than fiber optic technology. It's about more than fast internet speeds. It's about community. It's about taking care of people beyond the walls of my house. It's about looking towards the future. Welcome to episode 439 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with Michelle Barber and Andre Lortz. Both serve on the Kaysville City Council and are members of the group Citizens for Kaysville Fiber. But today, they join us to talk as regular citizens of the city of 30,000 in Utah. Kaysville has been working to improve internet access for years. Some people have good connectivity, but other parts of town are very poorly served. Michelle and Andre share the history of efforts to make forward progress and moves to create a municipal fiber network. The city originally considered a model with a utility fee, but in the face of opposition ultimately decided for a bond approach, which just saw a vote where the measure was narrowly defeated. Michelle, Andre, and Christopher talk about how it happened, including how major providers funded public relations campaigns to scare people away, and the project's continued support, and what it means for the future. Now here's Christopher talking with Michelle and Andre. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. Today I'm speaking with two folks who are probably significantly warmer than I am and probably a bit sunnier too. Uh, Two folks from Kaysville, Utah. Uh, Let me introduce Michelle Barber from the City Council. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. And we also have Andre Lortz, who's also on the city council. Welcome to the show. Great to be here with you. Thank you both for joining. And I know that um, there's a number of folks from the number of local activists from the city council, people that have been engaged in this. And um, we weren't able to find a time that worked for everyone, but uh, we want to make sure that we we acknowledge just how much work has been put into this by everyone. So um, I really appreciate the two of you being able to to join us to to go over what's been going on in Kaysville and in a sense of what the future may bring. Um, but let me actually start quick. Michelle, I know that, that you have a bit of a, a technical background. Just tell us briefly about your yourself and, um, and uh, what brought you to your position in the city council? Yes, thanks. So I have lived in Kaysville for quite a while. I was actually born born here, lived in different places and came back raising my family and have four young kids right now. I've worked in uh, technology, web design, and user experience specifically uh, for my whole career. I started basic HTML like everybody else and have just moved on from there. And it's been a great, great career. I've always had a passion for technology. And then um, about three years ago, I had a young kids and a young baby and somehow found myself campaigning for city council in our little town. And it's been quite the ride. It's been a good experience. I'd always wanted to be involved in uh, civic leadership in some way. And this has uh, been a really great opportunity to serve my city and get to know a lot of people. That's excellent. And also energizing. Uh, when I had my son, uh, I definitely took a step back from everything else. I was doing. <laughs> yeah. Some go back, some go forwards. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> so Andre, same question for you. Uh, how did you find yourself on the city council? Uh, well, I was invited by uh, Michelle and the mayor about a little over two years ago to join what they had as a technical advisory committee to explore fiber in the city. And from there, it transformed into running for city council last year and starting service this year. 
Oh, that's that's interesting. I mean, I was not aware of that in your background, but we've heard this from several people who have um, made this an issue that that has launched them into a, a career of of serving the community. So it's great to have your perspective on as someone who's done that. I don't know if it's going to be a career, but I love to help <laughs> out the community. Sure. Well, I, I think it's it's just interesting, and it's a reminder that um, that at the local level, particularly in you know in, in towns that are less than say fifty thousand people, um, you know you can organize for change, or you can go ahead and put your hat in the ring. So, uh, salute both of you for that. Let's let's go back to perhaps even before that uh, when when you were starting, Andre. Um, and so let me ask you, Michelle, uh, what was the beginning for you of where the Kaysville Fiber effort has started from? Uh, for me, I've got to go fairly, quite far back, actually, probably um, about 10 years ago. Uh, from my personal experience is we um, moved, we bought a brand new house in Kaysville. We were really excited. Uh, we'd come from just a neighboring city, just just a few miles away, came in and found what a lot of new homeowners find and wish they had investigated earlier <laughs> when they get into their new house that I had no um almost zero options for broadband connectivity in my house. It's a problem for your career. Real huge problem for my career. And I, I've been working from home for a really long time, at least hybrid home and, and in the office. And so, like I said, I had young kids, young family, and it was really, it was really hard. I'm fortunate. We went through about a year of lots of different satellite options. And finally we were able to um, get uh, a wired connection to come to our house and it was helpful, but it was just an experience that I'll never forget of, Oh my gosh, what have I done bringing my family here? <laughs> and uh, anyway, it turned out fairly okay for me, but I always have known that that uh, broadband is number one essential. And number two, our area had limited options and that it was a really mixed bag of what you found depending on where you lived in our little town. So uh, fast forward a little bit, I'm campaigning and one of the big questions I would hear from people is when are we going to get better options for this? Every Lots of cities around us are having better options. We're falling behind. What can we do? Um, then I was elected uh, in 2017, started serving at the very beginning of 2018. And um, my very first meeting uh, at city council, one of the things we were working on was approving our city's own fiber rink that had been in the process well before I started of uh, saying we need to connect all of our city services somehow. We, um, they'd actually had fiber uh, decades before and they'd worked with uh, our county to put it in and it worked really well, but they just wanted to connect more things, substations, all sorts of ideas. And it also had the option, the idea, someday we could extend this to fiber to the home. And so day one started working on that. I was excited about the vision uh, but also saying, let's be really cautious how we go about this, because um, our area, our state had known some really successful fiber optic projects and much more popularly, we had known some uh, really uh, difficult ones that had a really hard time getting started. And so uh, the political side of it was a challenge. Yeah, I want to I want to get into that um, to, to get a sense in part because most of my interactions are with people that go much deeper on fiber than, uh, than the common person does. <laughs> so, um, so we'll talk about that in a second, but I- I'm curious, Andre, when was the first time that you started thinking about municipal fiber? Probably when I was invited to join the technical advisory committee. Uh, I mean, I'm I sensing a pattern. We had, we had some challenges, but yeah, 
when when I was invited, I think the first conversation I had with uh, the mayor and with the IT manager was, okay, you're going to have to really get me to understand why the city should do this. I was like, I'm going to say you should stay out of it. And it wasn't until we started going through understanding what was the uh, challenges within the city and how many people within the city had very, very poor options. And I mean, really, the, the separation between some neighborhoods having, you know, 90-year-old copper cable and couldn't get DSL to people that had brand new fiber connections. And clearly, the people that had what they thought was adequate could care less about the people that had nothing else. And so seeing that disparity in the city was like, oh, my goodness, we've got to help solve this because the businesses weren't solving it. The commercial providers would cherry pick what they want to do and where they invest money. And I said, you know, this is not something that an individual homeowner can go solve. So that's when I kind of looked over and said, this is definitely something the city's got to jump into to help solve the competition problem, the infrastructure problem. Now, as a, as a, a marker, I should have noted, Kaysville has about 30,000 people, a little bit less than that, I think. And, um, and so this is a, you know, it's a big enough city that you're going to have some good connectivity. And then it's, it's small enough that the providers are not going to extend that border to border. Generally, it feels like. Um, now, you also, as Michelle, as you alluded to, I mean, we've talked a lot about Spanish Fork, which has been, um, frankly, one of the sleeper, really successful municipal networks. Um, and we've talked a lot with Utopia. I've had Kim McKinley on, Roger on uh, several times. And um, and I guess I'm curious because I, I get a sense that people do have kind of a split feeling in that there's still a sense among some about the, the history of the financial problems. And and among other folks, there's just a sense of, of the fact that you have such great service at such low prices uh, for those who have it available. So, you know, what do people in Kaysville know about that in terms of what nearby communities are, are dealing with? I can I can answer from my perspective, going back to uh, what I was talking about before campaigning, when I was uh, mentioning, you know, how much I wanted better broadband inter- options and I'd love a fiber network. I personally was really careful to never say the word utopia when I was mm-hmm. campaigning because, and this is you know, four years ago, I I really associated it in my mind with just the failed projects and in my mind failed projects because I had uh, seen in the early, uh, what was it? Probably like 2006-ish time. Right. I worked in a neighboring city where Utopia came in, I saw both a business owner and homeowners. They were they put a lot of money up front, and then it took a really long time for the project to to get going. And I have admitted lots of times publicly that that's kind of where my knowledge of of the projects ended. You know, I just had a, that bad experience, that bad taste, and I was really cautious. Um, but then, since then, I've learned about how successful their projects have turned around, how their new models have worked really well. I knew about Spanish Fork, but it, not thoroughly. And so it's taken me a long time to realize, oh, there was so much more than just that initial bad impression that I had. And I think that's probably representative of a lot of residents that felt the same way. They heard one one thing, or it only takes knowing one person or one family member that had a bad experience. Mm-hmm. And then that's where it ended in your mind. <laughs> Or what I was happy to learn since then is, yeah, even if they had a, a hard time getting off the ground initially, they've had uh, much more success since then. And that's what should be talked about, at least as much as the, the early on troubles. 
And, and Andre, you had mentioned that you came in deeply skeptical. And I'm, I'm curious if that was, you know, I think a lot of people associate a kind of skepticism of government with almost anyone from Utah, just as a stereotype. And I'm curious if that was sort of the, the general sense, or if it was a sense of, of utopia and how it had struggled for so long that informed that at all? Or, or what, what made you so skeptical initially? No, I really didn't have a, a negative impression of utopia or other projects related to fiber. Um, I guess, you know, having a financial background, being a CPA, chief financial officer for companies, uh, I was able to get through financial information pretty quickly. Uh, for me, the skepticism was more of, you know, what's the city's role in this? Why should they be providing a communication service? And I think there was a little bit of a, a naive approach that, you know, I didn't really separate the ISP from the network operator or network owner. And that was part of the process as I learned the different components and parts. I said, oh, I can see the city's role and how they can be part of this and make it successful versus, you know, it's an all-in-one uh, type of thing that they have to do everything. Because that's what I think everybody's afraid of. The government doesn't have the expertise. They're not going to hire the best people. They don't pay the best. And so you're going to get a bad result because you don't get the best out of it versus a company that specializes in it they're going to put the right expertise and the effort to make sure it's successful. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I think even some of the, the strong supporters of municipal networks should be giving greater thought to, um, you know, I, one of the things that, that we try to do is to both be supportive of the right of cities to do this and also make sure that they are taking it very seriously <laughs> for all of those reasons, because as you saw with utopia, if you get some things wrong and there were some things that were out of their control, but um, it takes a long time to dig out of. So let's, let's move into the, into the history then of, of, so that's the sense of how you approached it and a sense of how people were thinking about it. Uh, but what was the, the process then of city council starting to make decisions around this? I think one of the best things we did early on in 2018, which is crazy, it seems like a lifetime ago, <laughs> but uh, one of the best things we did, and we actually, I have to acknowledge, we had some great help from uh, some residents who got involved as well, was instead of trying to tackle the entire thing all at one time and say, let's build this fiber ring and also build out fiber to every single person's home all at once right now. Let's take a step back. Let's say this ring is needed for city purposes, but let's build it to scale that eventually we can utilize it for other purposes. Once we're building, it's so much cheaper to <laughs> add some extra fiber strands right then where you're already in the construction mode. Let's do that. And then let's take a big step back and decide how we want to approach fiber to the home. And so uh, I went back and forth with the IT manager several times on different options. We had some different proposals come in. And that's when we said, actually, we need, we need help from the outside. Let's, let's bring in some experts from our community who can help um, lead and guide this project. And uh, Andre being one of them, I've joked many, many times, he probably wishes he had not answered my phone call that day <laughs> <laughs> because it's been a wild ride since then. But anyway, I think that was a good thing to do, even though it seems like it's been a long time and we're still very much in the middle of it. I think that was the right thing to do. I think if we had jumped into it right then in 2018, I think we would have been doing what you you caution people against, um, just jumping in without really knowing what to do, maybe having a partnership with a company that we didn't quite nail out really well and and most importantly not educating our residents and businesses about the opportunity and so that's it's also where you got pulled in andre so what happened next as michelle said we, we did give an rfp and requested 
proposal, but it was really generic about how do we bring fiber to Kaysville City. And we really ended up with the three different models, you know, a public-private partnership, a, you know, outsourced model, and a fully city-owned and operated utility model. And for me, it was like, wait a minute, these are totally different solutions. I don't know that we're prepared to pick each one. Let's understand the details better. And so we spent a lot of time trying to dig through all those and basically set aside the RFP to go through a learning process, as Michelle said, and brought in some expertise, uh, got some consultants, and tried to say, let's really dig this apart. And I think one of the things for us is that Kaysville owns its own power department. And so we have all the, the power poles, you know, we have uh, some of the infrastructure. And so that is a unique position. And so initially, the, you know, the utility model is the absolute best way. There's very little risk, very low cost. And, you know, we, we have all the infrastructure to be able to make that happen. Uh, the thing that then happens the community uh, did not like the idea of being forced into a new utility. And there was a big debate about inactivity, broadband, even a utility. Is it essential services? And, uh, you know, that fired up a lot of uh, the conservative base uh, within Utah, which has a very large conservative base. And uh, it was all about you're, you're taking away my freedoms, my choice, my options. And uh, so there was a lot of angst in discussion as we went through proposals and process to discuss it and have public meetings. And uh, eventually, as the city council approved the initial plan to do a utility, um, the citizens began a referendum process to stop it. And so that really began the next stage of well, what do we do here? So the city, the city council set aside the utility model and said, okay, we hear the residents that they don't like this model. And we said, we'll step back again and re reconfigure it based upon all the feedback from the public meetings and interactions that we had. And that's when we came to the proposal that we did here in 2020, uh, which changed it to really be a subscriber-based model that was gonna be put to a vote of the citizens because that was the other thing they said, give us a choice. This is such a big deal and it's a big commitment, you know, and it has a bond associated to it so that let's let's the citizens have their voice heard on this issue i want to i want to pull back just for a second to talk about that utility model because i was so excited when i first learned that you were pursuing that because it's such an elegant solution in terms of being able to make sure that every person has a reasonable cost service i mean if everyone's paying some amount. I mean, I, I feel like the sweet spot is often around $20 a month, which which certainly will, for people on fixed income, I would love to find a solution because it is a lot of money. But, but you know, I don't, I pay a lot more than that for schools and I don't have as much control over, over that. You know, like there's, there's a lot of things that I pay money for in the city that I don't get nearly as much perhaps perceived value from. Um, and so I, I really like this model and I honestly have thought for a while that Utah would be the first state to have it because there's so many people in Utah that really, that really value that, that community spirit and working together. I mean, often it's, it's not within government, but I, I was hoping that it was still the sense of we're all in this together would, would lead to the utility tax working, um, and, and it being the shining light that would then lead hundreds of other communities <laughs> in that direction. Because, I mean, one of my goals is obviously to have everyone connected. And it's so hard to do that if you don't have um, that, that, that income guaranteed from uh, the, the population. So the, the one thing that when we first started the utility discussion was, 
you know, the price was going to be like 12 bucks a month and you got a basic internet service included with that. And so you're, you're talking about the fixed income people. They'd essentially get the internet for that, which everybody was paying way more than 12 bucks a month for, you know, service that may be even worse than what we were going to provide. And so that's where it was a little bit surprising that people were so against it when the price was very low. Mm-hmm. I mean, they spend more than that on a lunch than, you know, in one day. And yet, you know, this seemed to be an astronomical number. And I think it's more about the choice. Yeah. I, taking yeah. away the freedom of choice. Yeah. I think that's what it comes down to. And not like, like you said, with the low income model, what I hope our community and more communities can realize is that this is a tool to benefit your low income residents or residents in need. It's, um, I mean, and you can get creative. If your city has the power, you can, we, we, we put, put out, you know, low income options where we can, you know, have very reduced rates where we can uh, work out payment plans, you know, whatever, whatever it would take, but we're allowing people to have a wonderful broadband connection at their home for affordable rates that will hopefully benefit their lives and help them move to uh, better circumstances. And I think even more, the demographic that came up a lot was um, our fixed income senior community that I think we also need to be very sensitive to. But I, I think like Andre said, most that we talk to, they're already paying for broadband service at some point. We found very, very few who had zero service at their home. Almost everyone was paying and usually they're overpaying and underutilizing what the internet could really do for them and their families and connectivity and uh, safety. I mean, we could go on and on about that. But I think anyone listening to this, I, I, I would probably just share the, the principal commitment that you have is probably the hardest battle <laughs> to, to educate on that. And to, you know, people don't, don't want to be told what to do. They don't want to have their choices taken away. And it, it's, it's going to be a, a difficult road. I think it's a worthy one, but it's, it's not easy to get everyone to catch that vision. So as as Andre left it, um, you were then uh, appeal, approaching different models in order to deal with that, to allow people to opt out. Uh, one of the things that I had seen at one point suggested that I think you were going to try to pursue the utility fee, but have a certain number of opt outs. But there was a concern that it just would lead to enough people opting out that it wouldn't work. And I think, is that what then pressed you to a whole different approach? No, I don't think it was that we, we thought that we'd have too many people opt out. Uh, the issue again was that they didn't have choice, you know, okay. that, okay, so what happens in the future? I opted out. How do I get back in? And mm-hmm. of course, all the worst case scenarios were always played while well, they're going to charge you way more and you're going to be disadvantaged and, oh, you're now going to, you know, make me disclose it on my sale of my house. And I'm not, my house is going to be devalued because I don't have fiber connected to it. And it, it was just kind of like all the the fear and the uncertainty and the doubt that was just pushed out about it that got a lot of emotions stirred up. I would just interject on that. We made mistakes as well. You know, I, I, looking back, we, we could have better explained that as well. I think our, my mistake that I would cautionary tale is assuming um, everyone has, was understanding as much as we were, you know, people who were just barely learning about it. It's quick to make assumptions. And that was something I wish I could have done better is taken more time to educate the, the big populace of, of residents. Let me ask you, Michelle, because 
you know, I, I don't, I, when I say this, I don't want to delegitimize honest opposition. No matter what a city does, there's always going to be people who honestly oppose it. Absolutely. But what yeah. I worry about is that there's sort of a whipped up opposition from a cynical group that pay like, you know, public relations folks to, to really just overly dramatize it. And, and there's a challenge in which I feel like, like a city council wants to have an honest discussion and it's difficult to do if some of the opposition is not interested in an honest discussion. And I'm wondering if that, if that was a dynamic. Yeah. And like what I was trying to say before is I tried to also be respectful because like you said, it's okay to have opposition and it's okay to have differing views. Um, But it is really difficult when we're not all playing or we're not all trying to see the same information in the same way. When we look at this past year, 2020, when we look at our, our opposition, we, we had it coming from multiple groups. We had multiple different forces of opposition um, coming against this project. And that was one of the hard parts of it. And yes, there were some that had outside sources that had outside funding and I guess marketing projects or, or sorry, efforts. I actually don't know all the details of it. We had just, you know, residents who some of them are Audrey and I's good friends who just uh, philosophically opposed, or like I said before, they had had a bad experience or knew of someone who had had a bad experience and they thought they were saving our city from having our, our own bad experience and our own cautionary tale. That's just where we're at. That's okay. But it was, it was very varied. There was lots of different opposition, everything from just government should never be involved in this. Let the private sector take care of it from now and forever to there should never be um, a bond. Bonds are always bad. Debt is all debt is bad <laughs> at all cost. Um, to uh, taking away choice, which we've talked about, even though we feel like we accommodated that, you know, people didn't didn't like that. And um, technology, we probably heard the technology argument a million times that uh, fiber technology would be outdated. <laughs> And I've been hearing that for 15 years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm trying to be respectful, but it, it also, it, it's, it's a difficult argument because I think even those that we really would press on it, they realize that fiber will not be outdated, but their argument was, you know, maybe something new will come 30 Mm -hmm. years, but the length of the bond is so long and technology emerges so fast, which is true. Very, very true that something else will come along that will make it, obsolete. And it it was a really hard argument to argue with because, you know, as we've seen, technology does change really fast, but you know, the roadways that we connect with, they they don't change as fast. And actually fiber enables that. So the roads that you build, uh, they accommodate the internal combustion engine just as well as they do the electronic electric car. Andre, it looked like you had a reaction to that as well. When you feel you're trying to be transparent and provide a uh, objective outline of facts and information to let people learn and, and make their own decision, and then you have opposition that is emotionally charging the facts with you know a slanted view, it's really hard. It's hard to overcome. It's hard to you know get past that when you know uh, I had I had somebody that I had met that just moved into the city before the election. And uh, was talking with them, and they mentioned how you know somebody just impassionately told them how bad this project was and how it was going to destroy the city, you know, and sink us into debt forever. And you know, so I started asking them some questions and talked to them, and 
And they, they said, well, I guess I just didn't really understand it, but they were so passionate, I figured I had to listen to them. And unfortunately, they voted against the project without really understanding it. You know, so that, that's frustrating when, when you get that. And I think, you know, as Michelle talked about, you know, things we, we wish we could have done better. And I think it's the ground game. You know, if we could have talked to more people one-on-one and interacted with them on a personal level, I think it would have made, it, uh, made a difference. And when we looked at the, the results, I mean, there were over 600 residents who didn't select yes or no on the fiber vote, but they voted. And so clearly they were, you know, the middle of the road people that if you just got them to say, well, it doesn't it negatively impact you if you vote yes, it would have been the other way. You know, and the other, the other thing, ironically, is that there's one HOA in the city that has a fiber, or not a fiber, but a, a connectivity broadband contract for every home in their HOA, whether each home wants that service provider or not, they're forced to use them. And that was our most negative vote was that area. And just the margin difference in that one voting precinct out of 22 was almost the total difference in failure on the project. What was the total vote? We haven't covered it yet, but the, the vote did fail. Yes. So we had uh, basically 17,425 votes cast out of 19,500 registered voters. So a 90% vote rate. I mean, that's for a local government, that's terrific. Just it's, it's, it's yeah. disappointing the total results, but kudos on engagement. 90%. That's 92%. Yeah, I'm coming from Minnesota. Well, so 90% I'm jealous. on fiber. Yeah, yeah. 90% on fiber. 93% overall voting in the city. Yeah, we have to get our game together. I think Minnesota's legendary for the strongest turnout, but I don't think our cities uh, hit that necessarily. Yeah. I have to check. That's going to be hard to beat. And, yeah. it, and it was a presidential election year, which we thought felt like the most fair way to do it as well. We'll right. get everybody out. I mean, no one will no one will be able to say that we didn't give every opportunity to voice. And so I think, Andre, the final, the final t- tally, did you say that yet? Yeah, so it's it was eighty eight fifty five against and eighty five seventy four, a two hundred and eighty five vote difference. So basically forty nine point two percent said yes and fifty point eight said no. So really, really skinny difference. So a couple of reactions. One is that Andre, the story about the um, the person uh, that had just moved to town. It's it's one of the things I find fascinating is my organization works on a, a number of different issues. And one of the things that we really oppose for a variety of issues I won't go into is incinerators. Uh, when cities build incinerators or counties, um, they are so costly that uh, when they go bad, they have taken entire towns with them. Uh, bankruptcy, effectively, like Harrisburg, Detroit. Um, there's a lot of places that have really struggled because of incinerator financing. Municipal networks have gone bad. And I've, I've tried to become an expert on all the ways in which they have. Um, and it's certainly a, a distinct uh, uh, minority and not very many of them. But there's not one that's threatened the finances of the city. I mean, these things, they cost less than a bridge in some places. You know, <laughs> they, they certainly cost less than the annual road construction budget. Um, and so that's one of the things I find interesting is people act like, if we assume the city would be mistaken to move in this direction, it's not existential as it's sometimes portrayed. And I don't think that's a great argument, because, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, worthy, it's worthy context. Well, the interesting thing is the, one of the arguments the opposition made was this bond is 130% of the city's annual budget. And it's like, well, why does that matter? I mean, the payment <laughs> is only 6% of the city's budget. 
Because that's what we had the obligation each year was just the payment, not right. the full bond. But they played it as though you had to pay it off every year. Mm-hmm. And said, how is the city going to handle 130% obligation? Yes. And then the other the other piece of it is, Michelle, I'm curious about this. You know, and I, again, I don't want to suggest that people that that oppose the project um, were all wrong. Um, and I want to respect that people have different reasons. But one of the things we've seen in places um, is that an initial vote, even in the days or week after, people start learning more about it, and they think, "Wow, I, I was kind of suckered by misinformation, and, and I'm I kind of wish I could do that again." Yeah. I can't tell you how many people have come out of the woodwork and contacted Andre and I and say, Hey, I wish I would have understood better. I, I met someone across town who was just relying on this. They, they, they are kind of thinking they're going to have to move because they have kids going to school. They have college. They want to work from home. If I would have better realized the impact of my vote or just where it was so close, if I would have made something made a different choice or, um, and we didn't really get into this, but once seeing that we had 49 plus percent interested, it took out any question of if the project would be successful. I mean, we, we, we um, were for 35% as the high, high end of what we would need to be self-sustaining. And that didn't even include businesses and schools and other utility functions. And so everyone saw that and went, oh, well, it really would have been been successful and um, I guess I shouldn't have been so cautious but it's hard because we didn't know that at the time and so there's been a lot of that and there's also been I would say um I've had quite a few people reach out and say you know I kind of voted no out of principle but I, I kind of wanted it to pass because sure, <laughs> sure I'd love to save money and have better technology great I would have subscribed but you know out of principle because I whatever whatever their principal values are I don't want to speak for them but now I realize oh darn and that that was too bad and so uh, I'm doing better now but those first couple of weeks getting those phone calls was probably the hardest the hardest part for me that's one of the things that uh, we heard quite often was that almost everybody that we've talked to was surprised about the result yeah the opposition thought it was going to pass and that they were just you know fighting against the the wind and you know uh, almost everybody says I can't believe it didn't pass I thought for sure it was going to pass and as Michelle said, some people voted no, even though they thought it would pass and said, that's okay, but I could say I stood by my principle. Yeah. And to that, I, I had a really good conversation with one of um, a local leader in our community that was on the op- op- opposing side. And I, I told him, you know, I think a lot of people were surprised. I'm not sure about him personally, but I said a lot of people were. And just as a, a cautionary tale, I think you, you, we should not underestimate how effectively fear spreads. The, the motto I gave our, our team at the end is it's so much easier to tear something down than it is to build something up. It's it's totally true. And one of the things that um, that I really respect about people who have put themselves out there to run for elected office is is the ability to keep moving forward after that, because I can only imagine how dispiriting it is. Um, but uh, so I, I think both for you and anyone else who's listening um, to to hold that in respect for people who are who are on city councils. I, I appreciate that. I think part of leadership is taking the losses, but also realizing there's still more to do. And I'm not just talking just about the fiber project Mm -hmm. as a whole, but there's always progress to be had in a city. And sometimes you have to adjust what your vision is based on what other people does. But moving forward is 
it is the epitome of leadership. And like I said, it's hard for a couple of weeks, but here we are, we're back at it. Andre and I were both working on other projects in the city too. That's kind of been uh, revitalizing as well. So what is the, obviously there's a significant number of people that, that still need a solution. And, um, and so what are, what are the final steps and the final steps, what, what are the next steps? And let's hope that it, it results in a solution for a lot of people. I don't, I don't think we can say final <laughs> for sure. I wouldn't say that. My first thing that I felt like we really needed to do, um, I, I tried to really effectively communicate. We have several different channels in our city. I tried to make sure they all had um, the information about what happened on the vote. And so uh, I think of the way I, I uh, coined it was Kaysville Fiber, so close, but not close enough for, <laughs> or still a no-go. It was so close, but it did not pass. And so I, we needed to respect that. You know, we had everything lined up to, to issue the bonds as soon as the yes vote came. Yeah, you would have been able to turn people on next year, which would have been remarkable. Yeah, we would have. We were all lined up to go. And so I wanted to send a very clear message to our city and say, we are not doing that. We are not going out to, um, to the bond market. We're not taking those out. We dissolved the technical advisory committee that Andre talked about. We dissolved because it, I felt like part of leadership is also recognizing <laughs> and listening. And that was a, a message as hard as it was to hear from our residents. You know, this didn't pass. That bond is not being taken out. That project in the exact form that we presented is, is not happening because that's important. And, um, and so we put it out there. We put the exact vote count. I wanted everybody to know this passed, or sorry, this did not pass. It was defeated by 285 votes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that number, everybody should know. And um, it was funny. One of our friends was saying, you realize you only had to get 140 something more <laughs> to turn this thing. And um, if you put that to two voters per household, that's really not very many, <laughs> really two plus voters per household. It's really not very many. But anyway, that was step one. Step number two is we look at it and we're a representative uh, body. You know, we represent the entire city. So we have to look at the quantified need that we have 49 percent plus of our city are saying my internet solutions are not adequate what what can you do for me and so that's the process that we're in right now and andres we're we're hitting closing comments i think so let me ask if there's anything else you wanted to make sure we got on this on the record for this interview well i would say that you know um the results even though the the proposition failed at the ballot it did as michelle indicated uh, solidify what was the interest in the city and because of that interest, we've had several parties reach out to us to say, hey, let's talk about other solutions and options to still bring a fiber optic network and hopefully an open access fiber optic network into the city. So I don't think that the vote was the end. It, in some ways, it may be the beginning of a new future. Excellent. And Michelle, any wrap up comments? Uh, I would just say, obviously, you have an audience uh, far and wide. I would just say, I think that the the endeavor that we're about to me at the very, very closing of this, I, I realized, I think it's about more than fiber optic technology. It's about more than fast internet speeds, going back to what you said at the very beginning. And I think this is something I'll champion forever is that it's about community. It's about taking care of people beyond my, the walls of my house. It's about looking towards the future about making sure 
that we're equip equipped to do the things we need to thrive in our homes and in our societies and jobs and school. Let that be a, a framework, a, a foundation that we use to, to build our communities on. And so I would say, take this as one tool in our tool belts to really make ourselves leaders in better communities for all. Yes, I think we can spread that message far and wide. And thank you both. I really appreciate the, uh, the insight and going over fresh wounds so quickly. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That was Christopher talking with Michelle Barber and Andre Lortz. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 439 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.